powers that be daily. Puck's podcast focus on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, October 5th, and today Dylan Byers is here to talk about Donald Trump's $475 million lawsuit against CNN, alleging defamation. Trump's attorneys lay bare a laundry list of examples of CNN's alleged political bias, but as for defamation, Dylan isn't sold. And later, Ben Landy and Eric Gardner discuss the breaking news that Elon Musk has revived his proposal to buy Twitter for its original price, $44 billion, just days before the dispute is supposed to head to trial. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Dylan Byers uh, to talk about Donald Trump suing CNN. (laughs) I'm quoting Axios here, but former President Donald Trump sued CNN on Monday for alleged defamation and is seeking at least $475 million. The complaint, which was filed in the U.S. District Court in Florida, claims that CNN tried to taint Trump using defamatory language as part of a, quote, concerted effort to tilt the political balance to the left. And it says that CNN uh, used actual malice in doing these things. That's the legal term. This is the legal standard for libel or defamation, basically saying that, in this case, CNN intended to defame Trump uh, with statements they knew were false or misleading. Dylan, that's an incredibly high standard (laughs) in in the media. Um, But before we get into the legal mumbo jumbo, and neither of us are lawyers. We're armchair experts. We're armchair experts, sophisticated media guys. (laughs) What's going on with this lawsuit? Does it have any meat to it? With Trump, I mean, lawsuits are as much a sort of public relations tactic as anything most often, and in many cases, a fundraising tactic. Like you said, the bar for defamation cases is very high in this country. That is obviously, I would argue, a good thing. The other thing I would say is that there's nothing that precludes CNN contributors in a legal sense from going on air and sharing their opinions about Trump. There's nothing in here to me that suggests that Trump has a sound case here. It is a much different case, for instance, from, say, the uh, the voting machine company that sued Fox News for defamation, because in that case, you actually had them disparaging and making demonstrably false claims about the voting machines. I'm talking about the Dominion Systems versus Fox case. I don't see any examples to date in this case of demonstrably false, malicious statements made against him that would actually hold up in a court of law. So where is this coming from? Why is he doing it? I think he feels like he stands to benefit by going against the media. That has always been something that he's done. The whole narrative at CNN right now, as you and I know, because we talk about it frequently, because we cover it, is that it was a little too aggressively anti-Trump during those years and that it needs to, hence Chris Lick's whole effort to sort of bring it back to the center and and allegedly right the ship. So it's a ripe and fertile time for him to bring this lawsuit to get the attention that it will give him to perhaps fundraise off of it. But whether or not he, he ever sees a dime from CNN or Warner Brothers Discovery, I would doubt that. It's making an argument that CNN bent facts to suit their political narrative. For instance, they say, uh, this is this is in the in the complaint, CNN's disparate treatment of public figures who support its narrative versus those who do not, such as the plaintiff, Donald Trump, is a clear indicator of CNN's malice 
and evidence that the defendant is not reporting the news, but rather propagating its political views. That doesn't seem to me an indicator of actual malice in the legal sense, unless CNN intentionally reported something knowing it wasn't true and put that out for audiences. It's also just disingenuous because obviously Trump is all too familiar with Fox News, right? And knows knows what they do and what their brand of quote unquote uh, news is. It is not as though cable news channels have a like government stipulated mandate to only report the news, right? I mean, these are places that are filled with opinion and sentiment and analysis and sometimes errant claims that are or are not corrected. That is just sort of the nature of the beast. And I think Trump understands that. I think his lawyers understand that. You know, it was unusual, actually. Sarah Palin took the New York Times to trial. This went to trial. This is a rare thing, actually, for for a case like this to go to trial, basically arguing that the editorial page at the time led by James Bennett at the New York Times back in 2011 defamed Sarah Palin by basically saying she had encouraged the shooting of Gabby Giffords as part of her political rhetoric and, and, you know, conservative fundraising tactics. They made a mistake, basically, and it didn't look good for the New York Times. And yet they found that she was not in the right to, like, sue the New York Times. Um, It was just sort of like the normal practice of journalism. They fucked up, unfortunately. It looked bad for the New York Times, but they didn't actually defame her. Two things on that. One, it is very good that we have a high bar, right? A a world in which the press doesn't have the opportunity to fuck up is not a world that I want to live in um, because it it would scare the bejesus out of you, uh, you know, of doing any real substantive reporting. It's okay to be wrong sometimes. But you're right, not a good look for the New York Times. And I think that's my second point is even if Trump doesn't have a case to stand on here, and even if this is sort of seen as absurd, you know, I think we've talked in the past about how very oftentimes your reputation, the reputation of your brand is often not decided by you, but decided for you by your your opponents and your critics. And this is a case in which CNN will once again be sort of dragged through the court of a public opinion on whether or not it's biased and how biased it is, even if that might be Jeff Zucker's CNN that is under review here, the vast majority of people don't know whether it's Jeff Zucker or Chris Licht running CNN. And so it is just the brand, right? And this is, again, this goes back to this whole Warner Brothers Discovery effort to sort of, we often talk about it in terms of departisanify, depolarize, whatever, but it's really about sort of depoliticizing CNN, really, about no longer having CNN be a brand that 40, 30, or 40% of the country feels is just wildly liberal and has no tolerance for their worldview. And so I think this doesn't help them in that effort. One thing that jumped out at me uh, is they, they cited this reliable sources segment that Brian Stelter did, which always graded on me, actually, because um, it felt It just felt a little inappropriate, actually. He had on two psychiatrists. They were sort of like chewing over what Trump's like personality disorder was. And like Stelter like tweeted at the time, like narcissism is a personality disorder. And that just was like, are you, are you doing the news here? Like you're like, and, and by the way, like psychiatrists, like the responsible ones, at least like say like it's inappropriate to diagnose somebody without like seeing them clinically in an office and just like looking at them from afar. Again, I don't think it's like out of balance to call Donald Trump a narcissist, but like saying that is he's like saying that he is with like some kind of like scientific diagnosis from afar is just a weird look and kind of irresponsible. And so that's just one example in the complaint that 
Trump's lawyers cite. The the one thing I would also encourage, it's sort of so obvious it doesn't even bear mention, but don't forget who the plaintiff is here, right? I mean, Maggie, <laughs> Maggie Haberman just wrote a whole book which provides a litany of examples, as do many of the Trump books that have been written over the past few years, provides a litany of examples of times in which not only did he make false statements on the record that one could argue defamed others, but off the record or in private, he actually uh, displayed a fact that he sort of knew what he was doing in some cases, right? Which is, so if you want to talk about uh, defamation and malicious defamation, it's, uh, <laughs> I, w- I don't want to say it's pot calling the kettle black, but it's like, it's, um, you're one to talk, obviously. That's neither here nor there for the headaches that CNN's lawyers have ahead of them, nor the PR team. But anyway, I mean, I, I don't think it should be lost on, on any of us that this is sort of the theater and the Barnum and Bailey that we grew very accustomed to between 2015 and, and 2021. You know, Dylan, before you go, the one, one lawsuit like I am interested in, which is sort of in this category, um, is... Uh, Dave Portnoy suing Henry Blodgett and Business Insider. Portnoy is the founder of Barstool Sports and and Business Insider ran not one, but two articles digging into Dave Portnoy's sex life. They basically were saying he was inappropriately hooking up with younger but of age women and doing sex things that millennials do. And it was just like no one else in the media followed up on this story. Right. No law enforcement people followed up on this story. And basically, it looked like a kind of just like kind of an attack on Dave Portnoy because they, you know, people don't like his politics and Business Insider is kind of progressive. (laughs) Uh, And so, I don't know. I'm interested to see where that goes and to see if a court or a judge anywhere will be like Business Insider proceeded with this story, airing the dirty details of Dave Portnoy's sex life without any evidence of criminal wrongdoing. Yeah. To just pull back a little, I think we're living at a time in which the sort of most powerful people feel a great deal of animosity or antipathy toward the media and and feel like in many cases the press is able to sort of get away with murder in terms of what it's allowed to to print and and I think they often read things in not not just the tabloids but the pages of you know the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal and they wonder how is it that people can get away writing this because you know they feel at least that it's not true that tension is real and those sentiments are real. And I think for the next several years, it's going to be interesting to sort of see how that question of defamation and where that line is drawn will continue to be defined and refined as some of these cases play out. Yeah. I mean, everyone reads the headline. Everyone reads the the attention-getting story. No one reads the correction buried at the bottom of the article the next day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like in, in italics. Um, <laughs> and I think a lot of people, and, and I mean, this is the thing journalists generally are, are having a hard time dealing with is that we assume people understand how journalism works. We assume that people understand the difference between off the record and on background or deep background. We assume that people are reading past the second or third paragraph. The public has different assumptions about how journalism works and, and a lack of knowledge, frankly. Um, and it's you need to be a little more humble about that stuff too. Anyway, Dylan. Thanks for breaking this down with me. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. When we come back, Ben talks to Eric about Elon Musk buying Twitter again. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Eric Gardner. How are you? I am good. Good. Very good. Before we get started, I should say that 
you and I had literally just finished recording a segment about Twitter and Elon Musk and their litigation in Delaware, and specifically about how Morgan Stanley is fighting to keep its communications with Musk a secret, which is all pretty fascinating. And if people want to learn more about that, they can go to puck.news. You've got a piece up about this. But just as we were wrapping up on Tuesday, I should say, is when we're recording, I got a push alert saying that Elon Musk has offered to close the acquisition of Twitter for the original terms of $54.20 a share or $44 billion. I don't even know what to do with this information. I'm practically besides myself because as you know, you've been following this case pretty closely. We just spent months, really since April, when Elon first signed the merger agreement saying that he was going to take Twitter private. He then changed his mind. We've been obsessing over Elon's efforts to back out of this deal and this incredible litigation that's been going on to allow him to back out. What's your initial reaction to all of this? Well, my first reaction is thank you, Elon, for uh, making me uh, tape a second podcast. But, uh, you know, and thinking about this, you know, it, it, it's really hard to read Elon's mind. I mean, he's a, you know, very eccentric guy and, and far beat from me to uh, be able to say exactly what it is he's thinking. Uh, you know, there's different possibilities here. Number one, uh, I never thought he was going to win this case. The question to me was always, is he going to lose badly or is he going to lose very badly? So it's possible that, you know, his lawyers talk some sense into him. The other possibility is that he is coming off a day of uh, intense embarrassment. I mean, not only what were, you know, months of text messages poured into the public domain, but he made a pretty uh, outlandish suggestion that Ukraine should remain neutral in the Ukraine-Russia war. People were really making fun of him on that one. And so this could be be an effort to regain kind of control of the narrative, to get control of uh, of power and all that. You know, the other thing is, you know, he's an impulsive guy. I mean, like he wanted to own Twitter initially. Maybe he woke up uh, this morning and decided, you know what, I still want to own Twitter. And, and so, you know, he could have just decided, you know, let's just go for it. We could, you know, spend the next year in court or I can, you know, just do what I was originally going to do. It kind of makes sense at the end of the day because I, I do think that this kind of case was destined to be uh, settled one way or the other. Yeah, just last week, we got a massive tranche of uh, Elon texts that were released as part of the pretrial discovery process, which were interesting, which were amusing. Maybe he didn't enjoy that level of public scrutiny, although he's, he's a guy who obviously lives his life pretty publicly. So it's hard to imagine he was so embarrassed by those that um, he wanted to avoid further disclosures, it's possible that just reading back through all these texts where he's joking around with, uh, you know, how many billions of dollars Larry Ellison's going to throw into the pot or whether Sam Bankman Freed can put up some money. Maybe he just, you know, got the bug all over again, got excited and figured, uh, you know, that was fun back in April when, uh, when I was talking with my buddies about how we were going to finance this deal. Like, screw it. Let's just do it again. Yeah. If there's one thing that was clear by those uh, text messages, it's that, you know, there were people, you know, very famous and very rich who were, you know, texting him kind of like kissing his ass, you know, uh, you know, great job, you know, can't wait to see what you do with it, with this. So maybe, yeah, maybe it was a nostalgia. The other thing is he had a deposition in a few days. So it's possible that, you know, that was a deadline for him. But on the other hand, I, I've always, you know, been told that he's he's actually pretty good at deposition. For as wild as he is in, in court and, you know, doing all this litigious stuff and defending himself, he actually you know, handles himself pretty well 
whatever happened is uh, pretty remarkable, though, because, you know, I think a, a lot of people were expecting at this point, after all these months, you know, that we're fighting to just to suddenly at the snap of a finger, decide that, you know what, I want to own Twitter. <laughs> it's, it's just pretty wild. I just want to read a couple lines from the Wall Street Journal story, which helps to put some of this into perspective. Mr. Musk lawyers communicated the proposal to Twitter's lawyers overnight Monday and filed a letter confidentially with the Delaware Chancery Court ahead of an emergency hearing on the matter Tuesday. The two sides are now discussing how to ensure the deal can be closed. The judge overseeing the case requested they come back to her by the end of the day with a potential plan that would allow the litigation to be dropped. So again, we should say we're recording this on Tuesday. It sounds like this conversation is going to happen sometime tonight. The journal goes on to say that should the parties agree, the proposal would enable them to avert the high stakes trial set to begin soon. That was um, October 17th is when the trial was set to begin. And like you said, Eric, it was pretty clear to most people, most outside observers, insiders as well, that Musk didn't really have a case here. But what was his case and what was the um, the fundamental weakness for people who hadn't been following this closely? Yeah, I mean, he uh, pointed to the fact that, that, you know, Twitter's bot problem was a lot more prevalent than it was acknowledging as a, as a, you know, problem of this service. And, you know, he said that this was a material adverse effect, you know, something that, that really he didn't uh, know about and expect when making the deal with Twitter. I think a lot of people doubt that. Um, and that was really the fundamental weakness of the of the case. Even with a, a whistleblower, uh, Twitter's ex-security head coming forward, uh, it's it still, you know, was the fact that he made a contract. He made a deal to, to acquire Twitter. He could have done due diligence at the start. There was nothing really shocking. And even in these months where you know, they were collecting data and trying to figure out whether Twitter has a bot problem. I don't think that anything came came out that was pretty definitive. This was a case that he was probably going to lose. Even the judge had signaled in various discovery rulings and, and everything that she wasn't particularly impressed by Elon Musk's position. The real question wasn't whether he was going to win or lose the case, but what the judge was going to do about it, whether she was going to order Musk to close the, the transaction to make, make him go forward with it, or whether it was there was some, you know, financial penalty that he could pay, or, you know, whether, you know, he was going to, you know, tie this all up in another few rounds of litigation, maybe going to federal court, claiming a securities fraud violation. But really, I don't think that there was much question that, that Elon Musk was going to lose the case. Real mystery was, how is he going to lose it? And this was kind of the safe, if he does go ahead and decides to purchase uh, Twitter, that's like about as face-saving as, as possible here. And I think that's what Wall Street pretty much has expected all along. Even in the past week, things as, as mundane as, you know, depositions being postponed caused a bump in Twitter's stock price because everyone assumed that, you know, hey, this could be a signal that the deal is at hand. Uh, everyone has been, you know, on pins and needles waiting for some sort of announcement to come. I think there was a lot of dubiousness about the fact that the trial was going to go forward maybe to the dismay of, you know, all the, you know, Delaware hotels who, uh, you know, probably stood to make a fortune on uh, all these lawyers coming in. But uh, overall, I'm not surprised. I'm sure that a lot of people on Wall Street aren't surprised either. Right. That was always part of the the game theory here to the, his entire litigation was that it was sort of a, a charade where Elon's presumably trying to make this thing just as painful as possible for Twitter, which is a public company. Their, their stock has gone down the toilet, um, along with the rest of the market, which of course is the real reason that Elon wanted out of this deal, right? But um, they can't go on like this forever, tied up in court 
And so even if Elon never had a strong case and was always bound to lose, that was the real cudgel that I think he wielded here is um, Twitter didn't want to stay in the state of affairs for long. And, and Elon, with his army of lawyers, could draw this thing out. Even after losing, there could I presume there could be appeals, there could be other uh, protracted settlement negotiations that take their toll. And now it looks like none of that's going to happen. You know, I will say that it doesn't make the situation even any less uncomfortable because, you know, for months, the the two sides have been trading shots at each other. And now they have to, you know, be married. I'm sure that Twitter's employees are not thrilled at all that Elon Musk is going to be owning the company. I'm sure a lot of Twitter users are, aren't uh, thrilled either. Uh, so there's, there's definitely a lot of questions that need to be answered. And probably the solution that would have made the most sense is just going to come up with some sort of financial penalty and both sides walk walk away. But, you know, now they're actually going ahead with the marriage, which is quite incredible. You know, it's the equivalent of the roughest engagement ever. And then at the end, deciding, you know what, I still love you. I want to go ahead with this. So totally. I can only presume that what's really changed now beyond the social context is that Elon figures that the total cost of overpaying for Twitter, but owning it is less than the monetary cost of paying $5 billion, $10 billion, even $15 or $20 billion to Twitter as a penalty to walk away. At least at the end of the day, he, he's going to overpay for this thing. It's definitely overvalued at $44 billion. There's no question in this market after tech stocks have plummeted. But at least if he pays the money, he owns this thing. It's his. And now uh, it's his plaything to do what he wants. I suppose, though, you know, it comes just a day after the Supreme Court uh, has decided to take up a case involving uh, Twitter and Google and, and Section 230, he would be paying $44 billion on the front end. It's possible that he could be paying a lot more on the on the back end because this free speech thing is is not going away. There's definitely going to be costs involved in, in running Twitter. So, uh, you know, God bless him. Not sure I would want to own Twitter, but uh, good luck to him. Yeah. And we should say too, that like, as Bill Cohen's always pointing out, Twitter makes something like a billion dollars a year in revenue. I mean, it, it, it's really not a lot of money especially at a $44 billion valuation. And if Elon wants to turn this thing around, make it into a truly profitable company, there's just so much work that needs to be done on the back end to grow the user base, to make it a more enjoyable product, to grow the ad revenue. These are really difficult, entrenched problems. And Twitter's been around for a long time and has not managed to solve all of these. But thanks for coming by, Eric. Uh, appreciate you jumping back on the pod for a second time today to record over our previous recording. And um, we'll see what happens with all this. Yep, hopefully it won't be a third. All right, see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 